0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Peter Winkler, author of Mathematical Puzzles, published by Rutledge in 2021. This is an expansive collection of puzzles, several of which were familiar to me, but many of which were not, and I expect will be new to most readers. What makes the volume uniquely valuable, though, at least to this reader, is the way its chapters organize batches of puzzles so as to prime the reader for an important mathematical result. The relationship between puzzles and math shines through throughout the book, and I'm looking very forward to asking the author more about it. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Corey. So if I could ask you first to introduce yourself and give a bit of uh, your own mathematical background. I'd be happy to. Um, my name again is is
1: Peter Peter Winkler. Um, I'm a a professor of mathematics and computer science at Dartmouth College. Um, I have had a variety of jobs in mathematics during my life. Uh, uh, After college, I worked for the government. Then I joined the U.S. Navy during Vietnam and worked as a a cryptologist for the Navy. Then I went to uh, graduate school, got my PhD, had a postdoc at Stanford. Worked at Emory University and uh, Bellcore and Bell Labs. Um, at Bell Labs, I was head of a Department of Fundamental Mathematics Research. Um, <clears throat> and uh, after a year at the Institute for Advanced Study and various other um, shorter events, um, I became a professor here at Dartmouth.
0: So... This might intersect somewhat with your own research background, but what led to your interest in mathematical puzzles?
1: Well, I, I guess I've always enjoyed puzzles. And uh, when I was a kid, I I, uh, I heard a puzzle I liked. I would jot down uh, a few words about it in a little green book. And eventually I had a, a nice collection of mathematical puzzles. And, and word got out about that, apparently, because at a meeting, I was approached by a publisher named Klaus Peters, who said, I heard you had a great collection of mathematical puzzles. Why don't you email them to me and I'll publish them? So Klaus and, and his wife Alice made it so, made it sound so easy to publish with them. I said, OK, I'll, I'll do that. And that became my first puzzle book, which was called uh, Mathematical Puzzles, A Connoisseur's Collection. And then after that, people started sending me their own puzzles that they liked, and I would take those and fix them up a little bit to my liking, add a few of my own inventions, wrote a second book called Mathematical Mindbenders. But the newest book uh, adds lots more puzzles that people have sent me from all over the world, a few more puzzles that I composed myself, and many of the best puzzles from the first two books to make quite a large volume with over 300 puzzles. And, uh, and as you've noted, Corey, these are organized in a different way from before. Um, I decided to devote a chapter to each sort of technique for solving puzzles and to end that chapter with a real theorem of mathematics whose technique is used in that proof. And, um, this way, I, I would make uh, people are always claiming that techniques used in puzzles show up in real mathematics.
0: I wanted to use this book to actually, in effect, prove it. So, before we discuss the connection between puzzles and math, which I do want to discuss, um, we're doing a re recording uh, due to a technical problem. and... Earlier, I remember you said a bit about the process by which you accumulated many of, these, many of the puzzles that made it into this book. Could you tell me a bit about your correspondence and the sources from which you drew many of the puzzles that ended up in this new book?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. I, probably the most common source is just friends, acquaintances, and people who maybe I haven't never heard of but who've read my previous books, who send me an email with a great puzzle in it. Um, of course, often it's a puzzle I've seen before. Um, it might not be a puzzle which is appropriate for my books because maybe it requires too much high-level math or something like that to solve. Um, but if it is a, a, uh, a good puzzle, I want to use it. I ask permission. I usually rewrite it in my own words and add it to my collection, and it appears uh, in my next book. So that's the most common way I get a puzzle. But um, there are collections of puzzles out there. Some of them are collections of problems which have appeared in competitions. Um, and occasionally I find a good puzzle in one of those as well. Um, and a, a special favorite is the Moscow Mathematical Olympiads. Um, most Olympiads have Problems in it which require higher, higher mathematics to do and not, are not really appropriate for puzzle books. But for some reason, the Moscow <laughs> has an unusual number of really fun puzzles. And uh, so I've borrowed quite a few of those.
0: And I do see them credited throughout. You also have a very impressive acknowledgements section at the beginning, which I also appreciated. These are mostly correspondence, I think.
1: Uh, yes. Um, a few, as I noted, are are people that I've never met um, in a few cases never even corresponded with, but know about their names because they're listed as the composers of problem puzzles that I used.
0: So you mentioned the Moscow Olympiad, and I'd like you, if you would, to expand on one section of your introduction in which you describe uh a distinction, but also connections between doing research mathematics and drafting or solving mathematical puzzles
1: yeah i I have three categories and they're not completely well defined. Um, there are serious mathematical problems and these are, are are questions that arise in mathematics research upon which, either applications depend or other parts of mathematics depend. I mean, you all heard of the Riemann hypothesis and P is not equal to NP and, and things like this. There are lots of questions not quite as famous as that, but equally interesting that, that uh, um, people work on and publish papers about and try to get partial solutions to. So serious mathematics research. And the second category is the kinds of problems that show up in competitions, uh, like the International Olympiads and the Putnam exam, which was offered to um, college students in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, and these are problems designed to test you, to test your ability to to use mathematics to solve problems and use your imagination as well. And the third, third category is the one that interests me the most is is uh, what I call mathematical puzzles specifically. and And the most important feature of these is actually entertainment. I mean, these should be fun to solve. They don't necessarily require higher level mathematics. They aren't necessarily hard. Some of them are actually quite easy. But they open our eyes to ideas. They... I'd have paradoxical answers that challenge your intuition. Um, uh, They're enjoyable to do. That's really the the bottom line. Now, of course, the categories are not completely well-defined. And as as I've mentioned already, a problem designed to be challenging could also be a lot of fun and and be appropriate for one of my books. And... uh, Sometimes a puzzle which was designed for entertainment leads to serious mathematics and sometimes the other way around. Uh, Amusing puzzles arise in a paper in mathematics or a paper in computer science.
0: Now, before we get into the content of the book, could you say a word about your illustrator, Jess Johnson? And as I recall, the serendipitous way in which you came together.
1: Yes. uh, um, Across the river from me in the state of Vermont, uh, you can walk there. There's a wonderful place called the, uh, um, the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, and it's a, it's a marvelous school. And since I was looking for a cartoonist for my new book, I thought, gee, why not put up an ad there? And, and uh, with my publisher's cooperation, we collected a bunch of portfolios from finishing students at the Center for Cartoon Studies. Um, There were two um, cartoonists whose style I particularly liked for the book. And one of them turned out to be a fan of mathematical puzzles. I couldn't resist that. That was a young lady named Jess Johnson. And uh, she was great for the job, absolutely wonderful to work with. Uh, um, she She did some of her own cartoons just based on the content of the book but also made nicer pictures, uh, diagrams, needed for presentation of puzzles and and their solutions. Um.
0: So in your selection of puzzles from among the correspondence and Olympiads and other sources you found, what criteria did you impose? And maybe the better question, what prerequisites should the reader come equipped with or expectations perhaps?
1: Yeah, so uh, prerequisites is a good, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that
0: first, yes.
1: The um, uh, I, I drew the line uh, below calculus for what you need to know in, uh, in mathematics in order to solve these puzzles. Um, so that a bright high school student, even a bright high school freshman, would enjoy most of these puzzles quite a bit. Um, it is true that, that, um, there's mathematics involved, which you might not have seen in high school, like elementary graph theory, elementary probability, um, and, but, uh, the chapters give me a chance to introduce the ideas, um, that a reader might not have seen, um. So mostly what a reader needs to bring is not high-level mathematics, but just uh, enjoyment of puzzles, enjoyment of mathematics, and, uh, and uh, willingness to be creative about solving puzzles.
0: I, re- I think I remember this phrase from your introduction, that the book is intended for people who like math and people who like puzzles, the implication being that each has something to learn about the other topic if they get into the book. I think that's the case, yes. So I want to get into a couple of chapters in detail to give the readers, sorry, the listeners a sense of how the book is organized and, and the kinds of puzzles you include. But I wonder if first you'd like to propose a puzzle that you think makes a good impression.
1: Sure. And uh, let me begin by going back to the first part of your previous question, which is the uh, criteria for inclusion of a, of a puzzle. And one um, of uh, uh, one criterion that I, I very much look for is does the puzzle open your eyes to something you might not have seen before? And, uh, um, and and of course, a puzzle is a great way to get you to open your eyes rather than just saying, oh, here's, here's a theorem. Give somebody a problem where they have to come up with it themselves uh, in order to see it. So here's an example of a puzzle of that kind. Um... Um, which originally appeared on a Putnam exam and it introduced a character, uh, a female basketball player that they called uh, Chenille O'Keel. The hypothesis of the uh, the puzzle was that um, O'Keel began the basketball season with a lifetime free throw percentage below 80%. In other words, all the the foul shots she made while while playing professional basketball, she sank less than 80% of them. But she had a great season, and by the end of the season, her lifetime free throw percentage was above 80%. So the question was simply, must there have been a moment in the season when her lifetime free throw percentage was exactly 80%. Okay, so now when I first saw this problem, and, and maybe uh, as you're listening now, you're thinking, there, there is a famous theorem of mathematics called the Intermediate Value Theorem, which says that if you pass continuously, from below a certain number to above a certain number that you must at some point be actually at that number. And uh, But that theorem does not apply if you're not moving continuously. And when you're shooting baskets, you either make a basket or you don't. If you make a basket, your lifetime percentage jumps up a bit. If you miss it, it drops a bit. It does not move continuously. So it looks like the answer should be no. She could easily just jump over 80% at some point when she makes a basket. Great. And uh, so you sit down and say, well, let's make sure of this and see if we can do an example. For example, make it really simple. Suppose that um, she was uh, one for two. (laughs) At the beginning of the season, had only made two foul shots. Very clean player, and um, only made two. Uh, one, uh, she made two. She she tried two foul shots. That is, and made one of them. So her lifetime percentage is fifty percent. Then she makes the next basket, and now she's two out of three. Her lifetime percentage is sixty-seven percent. She's jumped over sixty percent. She makes another basket. She jumps over seventy percent to seventy-five percent. Great. Now, if she makes the next basket, she actually hits 80% on the nose. So we can't let her do that. We'll have her miss one maybe, make the next one, maybe make a couple more, miss one. You keep trying to do this, and you keep running into this stupid problem. It doesn't seem as if she could get past this number 80%. How could it it possibly be that you can jump over 60% and you can jump over 70% but you cannot jump over 80%? Well, amazingly, that is the case. You cannot jump over 80%. What's going on here? Well, the the reason is basically that 80% is, of course, the fraction four-fifths, right? Uh, The salient point is that it's a fraction of the form n minus 1 over n. And what that means is that at the moment that you hit 80% in your free throw percentage, you've had exactly four times as many hits as you've had misses, okay? Now, if you try to jump over 80%, then you're going to gonna have to jump over it by making a basket, okay? You can't jump over it by missing a shot. At that point, you have some fixed number of misses, four times that would be the number of hits that you need to hit 80% and you can't jump over that number because that's an integer <laughs> if you've missed 100 shots then you can't jump over 400 hits you go from 399 you make a shot you hit 400 you don't go to 401 so now you see what what have you learned we learned from this puzzle as there's that, holy smoke, there are some fractions you can't jump over going up. Fractions of the form n minus 1 over n. You can't jump over 80% or 90%. You can jump over 70%. If you think about it a little more, you realize, yeah, that as a matter of fact, fractions of the form 1 over n, you can't jump over going down. <laughs> okay. Um, so, that's why I love this puzzle. It, 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 it Forces us to find something that we never thought of before. Certainly, I never thought of before before I saw this puzzle.
0: Certainly, um, I when you, puzzle can do. <laughs> when you pose the puzzle immediately, I think, "Oh, I'm clever enough to see that the intermediate value theorem doesn't apply here because we're looking at discrete increments." But then you go through this process and you realize, "Yeah, there's something a little more deep, a little more subtle going on here." That is a great example. Thank you. So, I'm going to start. Uh, with chapter 7 to look at in a bit of detail uh, because this topic I find both uh, highly accessible and highly mathematical. Uh, it captures something essential about the doing of mathematics. So, to begin, could you describe the Lost Boarding Pass puzzle and how you approach it?
1: Okay, so yeah, the, Lord, the Lost Boarding Pass puzzle is actually a pretty well-known puzzle, and I believe it, um uh, appeared on uh, Car Talk, um, Magliotti Brothers' famous uh, uh, um, program about repairing cars, but where they also like to talk about mathematical puzzles. Um, and uh, the puzzle goes like this. So a 100 people board a full jetliner, um, but the first person online. line has lost his boarding pass. That's not an easy thing to do between the time you check in at the gate and you actually get on the plane. So maybe that first person was a mathematician. Um, Mathematicians have special powers that they can lose something in a short distance like that. Anyhow, being a mathematician, let's say it's a a male, He, he... He... gets on the plane and he chooses a random seat. And um, now the second person gets on and uh, she takes her assigned seat unless she finds that seat taken, in which case she just takes a random seat. And then the third person, same thing. The third person finds someone in his or her seat They take a random seat. Otherwise, they take the seat that they were assigned. And eventually, since there are 100 seats on the plane and 100 passengers, everybody is seated. And the puzzle asks, what is the probability that the last person, the 100th person online, line, ended up in his or her assigned seat? Okay, so... This is a uh, it's a tricky problem, but you might have a little bit of an idea of what to do because uh, of the chapter it's in. <laughs> well, okay. Now, all the puzzles are listed in the beginning of the book in a section
0: called puzzles. And by the way, are they in a specific order in that chapter? Because I noticed they're not in the same order as in the...
1: They're very roughly in order of difficulty, but you know, difficulty is very much a matter of opinion. So, uh, I think that um, the order they appear in the beginning is the same as the order they appear uh, in the chapter. But of course, they're but all the 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 puzzles are mixed up chapter to chapter in the initial list of puzzles. So, if you come upon this puzzle. Just in a list of puzzles, you don't have any idea of what technique you might want to use. Um, if you look at the hints, though, you can find out which chapter it's in, and you can hunt it down in that chapter. I didn't make it so easy to find the solution, because I want you to find the solution yourself. But um, anyhow, it's, it's it's in a chapter called The Law of Small Numbers. <laughs> and... Uh, the, it, the, the title is just a joke based on the law of large numbers, but that's right. It, it's, uh, um, my law of small numbers is that when you're given a problem and you try to work it out and you discover that it's too complicated, change the numbers. It's amazing how often people don't think of doing that. Don't, if you try it with 100 people on this airline and you try to figure out all the different things that could happen, Well, you go crazy in short order. You realize that there's an astronomical number of different things can happen when 100 people board an airline and some of them start taking random seats. Um, So try it with two people. Try it with three people. Try it with four people. See what happens. Um, If you try it with two people, well, okay, it's obvious that – If the first person takes the second person's seat, then the second person doesn't get his own seat, otherwise he does. So probability is a half. What about three people? Well, if the first person actually sits in his own seat, that's great. Then everybody sits in their own seat. If the first person sits in the second person's seat, then the second person will sit in the first or third, and the third person's probability of getting his own seat will be a half. Okay, and, um, and so you work through this, and you and you find out that half the time the third person ends up in the first person's seat, and half the time he or she ends up in their own seat. So the probability is again a half. So there are two things to notice about that. Hmm. One is that the probability was again a half, even though now there's three people. And your first guess for the 100 people might have been one out of 100. But that guess is not looking as good now. But there's something else that's maybe even more important. The first person never seems to end up in the second person's seat. Well, come to think of it, there's a reason for that. If the second the second person seat will always be occupied because if it wasn't occupied when the second person got on the plane, then the second person would sit in it. So there's no way the second person's seat is going to be available to the third person. And in fact, that's true for the and the original problem for a hundred people the 100th passenger is never going to end up in the 37th passenger's seat because either that seat was already taken when the 37th passenger got on or the 37th passenger took it. So the only possibilities for where the 100th passenger will end up are his or her own seat or passenger's one seat. And those two seats have always been treated as random seats by everybody. Therefore, those two probabilities are equal. And the answer to the question is a half, no matter how many passengers there are. Okay, so again, uh, it's a question of realizing something that you might not have realized before, putting putting these facts together. Um, But starting with by changing the numbers. In a, you know, the numbers in a puzzle that you're given are not sacrosanct. You're allowed to change them. And think about what happens if you change them. And uh, that's what that chapter is all about, just remembering that simple fact.
0: There's a classic solution to the – or there's a classic problem called the Monty Hall problem. There's a, a solution I was introduced to recently that involves increasing the number of doors in order to see what the in order to sort of make sense of where the crux of the problem actually lies, and it was a delight to see the reverse direction uh, illustrated in this chapter. Um, there's another problem in this chapter, which you call coins in a row, that pushes the technique in a slightly different direction. And so, as one more example, I wonder if you could introduce that puzzle.
1: Sure. Um... So the puzzle goes like this. Um, uh, Alice and Bob, I don't know who I used in the puzzle, but say Alice and Bob are playing the following game. Uh, or better yet, how about you and I, Corey, are, are playing the following game. There are 50 coins laid out in a line on a table in front of us. The coins are all different domin- Yeah, They may be all different denominations, or they may be all the same. And... Um, we're going to play the following game. Um, you get to pick a coin from one of the ends and put it in your pocket. Um, then it's my turn. I do the same. Then you would do it again. I do it. We just alternately pick point coins from one end or the other of the chain until finally I get the last coin. <laughs> You'll have... 25 coins in your pocket at the end of the game. I will have 25 coins in my pocket. And um, the winner is the one who has the most money. (laughs) And if we have the same, it's a tie. All right. So uh, that looks like a fun game. Um, And a quite common question in a puzzle is, here's a game who wins with best play. And in this puzzle, um, the object is to show that the first player, that's you, Corey, can guarantee to get at least half the money, no matter what I do. Okay. If um, it's possible the money cannot be actually evenly split depending on what the coins are. So that would mean that you can actually guarantee a win. But all you need to do is show that you can guarantee at least a tie. So... Um, this puzzle has a bit of a trap. Um, a natural thing to try to do with a game puzzle is to try to figure out how best to play the game. Um, what is the perfect strategy? And if, if, if we can show what your perfect strategy is, Corey, then all we need to do is show that that strategy guarantees at least half the money. But in fact, it's not easy to see how to play this game perfectly you actually need to look at all the coins and you could apply a technique called dynamic programming that can com- computer scientists know about um, and you'll need to do that in order to play the game exactly optimally um, so but you don't need to know how to play this game perfectly in order to actually answer the question asked. All you need is a way to play the game that guarantees at least half the money. And to find this way, what I would recommend is, yeah, start with four coins instead of 50 coins. (laughs) See what happens with four coins. Now, it turns out to be relevant that the number of coins is an even number. That's a little bit surprising in a way because if there's an odd number of coins, then the first player actually gets more of them. So you might think the first player would rather that there be an odd number of coins. (laughs) But think about it for a moment. If there's three coins and it's a penny and a quarter and a penny, then the first player is in big trouble. (laughs) The first player gets one of the pennies. The second player gets the quarter, and the game is over. (laughs) Um, So, in fact, uh, the conclusion of this puzzle is not correct, as the number of coins is odd. Um, But if there are four coins, um, the first player can win. And now you might notice, as you look at the four-coin game, Um, that if you number the coins, say, from left to right, (laughs) one, two, three, four, then the first player, if she wants, can always get coins numbered one and three. She'll take coin number one, and then the second player will be forced to make coin three available. She takes coin three. But she could also, if she wants, guarantee to get coins 2 and 4. Um, right, she just takes coin number 4 and waits for coin number 2 to be exposed by the first player. By the second player, excuse me. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, that works for 50 coins as well. If, if, if the first player decides that she wants all the odd-numbered coins... She can guarantee it. She takes the first coin. That gives the second player the choice of two even coins. Now the first player has another odd coin exposed. She takes it. The second player only ever gets a chance to take even numbered coins. (laughs) So the first player winds up with all the odd coins. And likewise, the first player can, if she wants, get all the even coins. And one of those two groups of coins must be at least half the money. That's all there is to it. So this is not the best strategy, but it certainly guarantees half the money. First player just figures out which 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 of these sets of coins is at least half the money and
0: plays to get the, that set of coins. Right. This is a nice distinction between an optimizing strategy and a satisfying strategy.
1: <laughs> That's right. Now, as it happens, this puzzle um, has led to some serious mathematics. I mentioned before This can happen. Um, I'll just state briefly what happened here. Um, uh, A clever person named uh, Dan Brown, not the writer, but another one. (laughs) Um, Notice that this sort of a problem arises when when two people share a pizza. Imagine you have a round pizza and it's cut with radial cuts into some number of pieces of various sizes. Uh, could even be an odd number, maybe. Um, but, uh, and now Alice and Bob are sharing this pizza and they use what I call the polite pizza protocol. Alice, of course, goes first, takes whatever piece she wants, and then they alternate taking pieces, but you don't reach across the pizza and grab a piece. You always take the next piece from the gap. Right, you know, so... Um, so you only have a choice of two pieces after that until the end All right All right so now you realize that after Alice takes that first slice this is just like the coin problem and you can conclude from that that if the number of pieces of if the number of slices is even which I have to admit it usually is <laughs> um, then the argument you gave before says that Alice can um guarantee to get at least half the pizza. Um, But (laughs) um, if the number of pieces is odd uh, and you devote some thought to it, you will realize that it is possible to cut the pizza in such a way that Bob has the advantage. But it takes at least 15 slices for this to transpire. Um, there is a fifteen-slice pizza that Bob can get nearly five ninths of. And a, a first problem, which I actually put out myself at a meeting in Europe, was to show that that's the best Bob can do. That no matter how the pizza is cut, Alice can get her can always guarantee at least four ninths of the pizza. Um, and uh, and that was shown to be the case by two groups of people individually. But then people generalize the problem even more um, to a game where there's a, 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 a tree and there are amounts of money associated with the leaves of the tree and players alternate taking leaves. And um, It turns out that that uh, very clever proof found by a married couple out in um, Idaho or Montana, the Seacrests, showed that again the, the the, and now there, we have a real theorem of mathematics that applies in many situations and there's still some conjectures about the behavior of this thing in general graphs that are unproven um, so it's a great story uh, this thing has led to uh, um, serious mathematical research
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear? check breakfast, lunch and dinner? check planning for what's next and how to say for it? You also, in the chapter, as you do all chapters, with not necessarily classical, but an important mathematical result that the puzzles help to elicit or illustrate in a way that, so that, and and then the results make use of the technique being highlighted by the chapter. So could you describe the result that you showcase at the end of chapter seven?
1: Yes. So, so yeah, this is this theorem, but the technical name, For this theorem is um, see it's it's well it's it's about partitions of edges of graphs, Um, and um, and the the theorem states that if you have a, a, a collection of an even number of things. Um, then you can pair up the items. Well, certainly you can pair up the items if you want. If there's an even number, you can pair them up any way you want. Um, but suppose you want to pair them up several times. You pair them up on one day. You want to pair them up on another day and pair them up on a third day. And now the question is, if, if you do this for the right number of days and you pair them up the right way, can you do it in such a
0: way that every Two items get paired exactly once. So this sounds like, can you do a parallel round-robin tournament?
1: That's right, actually. uh, That's a very good way of putting it, yeah. So if uh, you have an even number of players, say tennis players, and um, and you want to play a round-robin tournament, and which every player plays every other player exactly once, then you can do it. And this theorem says that there is a design for such a tournament. And um, and there's a clever way to do it. And you could see this clever way if you try it with four people or six people. And then you, and then you say, oh, wait a minute, I can see a way to do this now. Um, and that leads to this theorem. And now I have read any of the. Oh, go uh, ahead. I'm sorry. That theorem itself led to a much more difficult theorem. Um, that says you can also do this, this with, uh, in a sport where, say, seven people play each other at the same time, as long as you start with a number of players which is a multiple of seven. And uh, that was proved by a brilliant young Hungarian not so many years ago. And it was an open problem for uh, a century or so.
0: I'm not sure if this appears in any of the proofs without words, but it seems like a good candidate, based on the solution you provide.
1: Uh, This one might. The the solution to the more general problem does require
0: some words, I think. So as another example chapter, I wanted to discuss chapter 23. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I'll the, give away the... Oh, the of choice. Yes, I was going to give yeah. away the topic, the axiom of choice, which is notoriously challenging, sometimes even for mathematicians. Um, and I thought your medium, the medium of puzzles, was a great one in which to introduce it. So could you introduce uh, the axiom of choice uh, through... One of the puzzles or just uh, in your own terms,
1: well, um yeah, the axiom of choice chapter is is a bit of an oddball there because
0: uh,
1: uh many people feel boy, the axiom of choice that's a that's something in set theory. I mean you don't learn set theory in in uh, um, in high school, but it, it's it's a it's an axiom that that nearly all practicing research mathematicians accept as being true because it's useful and um, we know that it's consistent if set theory itself is consistent then it's consistent to add the axiom of choice to it and it's useful and it says something which in most cases seems completely obvious (laughs) Um, it says basically if you have a bunch of sets that are not empty, so each set has at least something in it, then you can pick one thing from each set. Well, I mean, what's to stop you? (laughs) Of course you could pick one from each set if each set has at least one thing in it, right? There's no requirement that you pick a different thing from each set. You just have to pick one thing from each set. Um, If we have... A set of pairs of shoes, we could pick a shoe from each pair if we want to. We could pick the left shoe from each pair, for example. If, um, if the sets are sets of numbers, we could pick the smallest number from each set, maybe. What's wrong with that? Um, yeah. So the problem comes when there are infinitely many sets and... And we don't have an easy way to say which thing we want from each set. Um, for example, if instead of sets of pairs of shoes, we have sets of pairs of socks, then we can't just say we pick the left sock because there is no left sock. Then we somehow actually have to do it. <laughs> okay. And um, well, Okay. It sounds a little strange to say that there's no way to do it. Of course, we just pick one. <laughs> um, but one of the things that we do in this chapter is we see that there's more to this axiom of choice, which says we can do this, than meets the eye. In fact, it leads to some pretty counterintuitive things. Um, now, in mathematics, the most famous counterintuitive thing that it leads to is something called the Banach-Tarski Paradox which says that you can take a solid ball of diameter one foot say and break it into finitely many pieces five pieces is enough (laughs) and reassemble them to make two balls two solid balls, each a foot in diameter. Okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. You can't make something that has volume two out of something that has volume one. <laughs> um, and uh, But the axiom of choice says you can. So, But mathematicians have learned to get around this by saying, well, you can't really do this with a knife. <laughs> because you need these strange things called non-measurable sets to do it. and So they developed something called measure theory, which tells us which sets are measurable. There are ways to get around this, and mathematicians know how to do it. Um, But in my chapter, you will find some, some things which don't involve very strange sets, but do seem to violate intuition, um, and um, so maybe you, you get a little more appreciation for what the what the uh, axiom of choice says, and what the also what the negation of the axiom. What what what's the world like without the axiom of choice? Um, I tell my logic students that. Neither the axiom of choice, nor its negation, can be disproved. But either one can be made to look
0: ridiculous. (laughs) So let's build a bit of intuition about the counterintuitiveness of the axiom of choice. One of the puzzles in this chapter is called Hats and Infinity, and it's, I think, the first... And one that I think is pretty straightforward to describe. So maybe without getting into the solution, can we get into the puzzle that's being posed here?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of puzzles in the book in various different chapters about prisoners. Prisoners are always taken advantage of by by cruel wardens and 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 uh, quite commonly, prisoners are fitted with hats which might be red or blue. And, um, and then, a, uh, the light goes on and everybody gets to see, every prisoner gets to see every other prisoner's hat colors. And then they're forced to guess their own hat color. And, uh, in the infinite version of this puzzle, there are an infin- a countably infinite number of prisoners. So the prisoners, you could think of them as numbered one, two, three, et cetera. Um. And uh, when the light goes on, they're, they're somehow able to see the hats on all of their infinitely many fellow prisoners. And then each prisoner is separately taken aside. They don't get to cooperate. They don't get to hear each other's answers. Each prisoner is separately taken aside and asked to guess the color of his own hat. And in this particular puzzle... The prisoners are all freed if only finitely many of the prisoners are wrong. All right. Now so the the prisoners are allowed to conspire in advance to say well, what well what are they going to do? They could say, okay, well, if I see this, I'll guess red, if I see that I'll guess blue. Um but no matter how no matter how much uh, much, uh, uh, collaboration they do in advance. Their individual choice is going to be a guess which could be wrong. And your intuition says it'll be wrong half the time, which means there's not going to be only finitely many prisoners who are wrong. And yes, without going into the solution, (laughs) I will tell you that the axiom of choice... (laughs) says, the prisoners can win this game. <laughs> they have a strategy using the axiom of choice by which they will win this game every time they play it. Only finally many prisoners will be wrong. Um, so I guess the lesson here is if you end up going to jail
0: with other
1: circumstances we have to hypothesize which are possibly a little unrealistic, but Bring the axiom of choice with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I took this chapter as a really nice reminder of the weirdness of what we consider true randomness. And I'll, I'll leave that as a hint for the listener in case they, they per- decide to pursue the puzzle without looking up the solution.
1: Yes, I think,
0: uh, yes, it's true. But,
1: uh, you know, it's also a reminder to readers... Um that uh not only do mathematic mathematicians not know the answers to all questions um but that not all questions actually have answers <laughs> um uh we don't have a world in which we know all the axioms <laughs> um some questions might have two different answers depending on assumptions and we just don't know the assumption may not whether assumption is correct or whether it can be thought of as being correct
0: in the sense that we must make meaning of our own lives i sometimes like the analogy to having to decide what mathematics we're working in from time to time so i don't want to go through uh, any more puzzles in this chapter, but I do want to discuss where it leads. And maybe the right way to begin is with the final puzzle, the figure eights in the plane. So could you perhaps set up the task that this puzzle involves? And maybe the theorem you conclude the chapter with will become clear as you describe it. Um,
1: yeah, maybe it'll be clear that I remember the theorem that comes with, but I can certainly remember the puzzle. (laughs) Um, And the puzzle is how many disjoint figure eights can you draw on the plane? And uh, well, when I say can you draw, Um, okay, you only have a finite lifetime, you only have a, a finite amount of pencil lead or pen ink or whatever. Like So the practical answer to that is you can draw some large finite number of figure in the plane. Um, but uh, theoretically speaking, you can draw infinitely many figure in the plane. Um, and you could draw them side by side in a line or you could fill up the plane with them more or less or you could draw little figure eights inside the loops of other figure eights if you wanted to. Um, So the answer is infinitely many. But in this chapter, we talk a little bit about the fact that there are different infinities. I mentioned before that in the prisoner puzzle, there are countably many prisoners. Um, The number of points in on the plane is uncountably many, and you can't number all the points in the plane with uh, the numbers even from 1 to infinity, uh, the integers from 1 to infinity anyway. There's t- there's too many points on the plane. Um, so we can ask whether you can actually draw uncountably many figure 8s on the plane. And... Um, And that's a little bit more subtle. If I asked if you could draw uncountably many circles in the plane, the answer would be yes. In fact, you could draw a circle of radius R around the origin in the plane, with the origin as its center, for every... Positive number r, and there are uncountably many positive real numbers. Um, but if you try to do that with figure eights, um, it seems to you seem to run into difficulties. And uh, so maybe I'll just leave it at that. Uh, or maybe what we did was, for the theorem, we showed that there are in fact uncountably many real numbers is that what we
0: did i will leave it to listeners to think about that a bit further (laughs) um but yeah i guess instead of the specific theorem that you ended this chapter with i should have said the context the the um the mathematical area uh a research area in which the theorem lived and that is graph coloring problems oh
1: um Okay. So yes, <laughs> yeah, there's um, possibly lots of my readers and some of my listeners um, are familiar with graph theory. So this is not the theory of graphs of functions like sine X or something like that. It's basically the theory of networks where you look at um, vertices or nodes, some of which are connected by links or edges. And um Graph theory is thought of as a very down-to-earth, um, often applied area of mathematics. And, um, and one of the very uh, useful things that we do in graph theory is we try to color the vertices of a graph in such a way that two vertices that are are connected by an edge, never get the same color. And uh, the minimum number of colors you need to do that is called the chromatic number of a graph. And, um, and again, that's something we think of as usually very down to earth. Um, it comes up when we assign um, uh, frequencies to cell phone towers, for example you don't want to assign the same frequency to two towers, um, which are in the same neighborhood because it causes interference, so you have a graph coloring problem. So you would think that um, the question of what the chromatic number of a graph is would not arise in, it would not get you involved in something like the axiom of choice or set theory or something like that. (laughs) But amazingly, it does. There there are some graphs that you can describe in a very simple way. Granted, they have an infinite number of vertices, but you can describe them in a very simple way. And the number of colors you need to color them actually depends on the axioms of set theory.
0: So let's leave chapter 23 as another example. And... I want to ask one question about that ties back to the organization of the book as a whole. How did you hit upon both the way in which you separate out the posing of the puzzles in the Roman numeral pages and the, the chapters that get into their themes and solutions? And then, how did you hit upon the idea of using these thematic groups of puzzles? as a way of leading into interesting mathematical ideas?
1: Hmm. Well, it's kind of hard to say um, how I came up with the idea. Maybe the best answer is that um, uh, I and others have tried to claim that the techniques that you use in solving puzzles are techniques that actually arise in mathematics research. So it seemed to me that, you know, if I look at this technique, yeah, there is a theorem where I could explain this. Here's here, Maybe I could actually do the whole book where for each technique there is a chapter. Um, so that's how the idea sort of came about. but. Um, um, but the actual gelling of the uh, of uh, 24 chapters, what their techniques would be and what the theorems would be at the end of each, that took a long time to... Um, there are some chapters for which I had a number of theorems that I kind of put in, and I didn't really decide until the end which one was the best. And there are others for which I wasn't really happy with the only theorem I could think of, and and uh, but maybe I got an idea and was able to replace it with something else, um, and uh, all right, some theorems illustrate the point of the chapter better than others, and, and um, yeah, it's not a perfect process, um, but in the end, um, I had something that at least I was happy with.
0: And uh... Yeah, I too found the result quite valuable. So let me ask you a couple of wind-down questions. First, is there another piece of scholarship or other media that you think makes a good companion to this book?
1: Um, there are a few, depending on the direction you want to go. If you're really interested in... In, in, in how to go about solving a puzzle in general, there's a famous book called How to Solve It um, by George Poglia, um, which talks about the steps that you go through in order to tackle the problem, whether it be a recreational problem or a serious problem in mathematics. Um, uh, but um, one of my heroes, as you can see from reading the book, Uh. Was Martin Gardner, um, who a, a, an amateur mathematician who wrote a famous series of columns in Scientific American magazine called Mathematical Games, um, and uh, lots of people, including me, owe their interest in mathematics or their interest in puzzles or both to Martin Gardner's columns, and um, Uh, His columns, which are not all about puzzles, they have lots of topics. Some are about magic, and some of them are about uh, paradoxes, and some of them are about scientific ideas even. Um, But they've all been reprinted in a series of books. Um, And um, they're wonderful to read. So um, you can't go wrong by reading anything by Martin Gardner, including a wonderful book of his, about scientific hoaxes. Um, his training was in theology and even wrote a book about
0: theology, which, uh, I mean, anything he wrote is worth reading. <laughs> I will take that to heart. Thank you. All right. So let me ask my and the New Books Network's traditional final question. What are you working on now? <laughs> um, I am working on
1: a um on a novel which is ultimately about um, something called time stamping time stamping <laughs> time stamping it's about a process by which um, you can show that a particular document or a particular picture or a particular musical composition or any creation existed at a particular time. And you can use some of the ideas of modern cryptography um, to bring this about. And um, uh, it's, this is a relatively recent invention. It goes back to people that I worked with at, at uh, Bellcore. Um, but there's no real reason why it couldn't have been invented a thousand years ago. So the, uh, my book hypothesized that it was invented a thousand years ago and that a secret society, um, kept this idea alive and made it possible for people to keep these proofs available. And, um, yeah, so it's it's science fiction of a sort, but there's it's it's uh, but there's nothing but everything in it is mathematically correct, um, and um, so everything in it might actually have happened.
0: I have a personal love of alternate history fiction, and this seems like a great example of that. And I will watch out for it with interest when it comes out, I hope you'll consider coming on to one of the new book network channels to discuss it.
1: Let me add one more thing, Corey, Uh, you didn't ask. Please do. Um, But um, of course, I'm a proselytizer of puzzles and I believe they uh, people all over the world and and every continent and every economic level should have these uh, available. So, um, when I signed on with Taylor and Francis, I got them to agree that, uh, my book and all the puzzles in it would be free online two and a half years, two and a half years after publication, um, which would take us to, uh, only a little more than a year from now. Um, something like July 1st, 2023, 2023. and, um. And uh, I intend to hold them to this so that uh, and not only will everything be available online free, um, but by then I will have, I'm already accumulating corrections to my puzzles and, uh, and also new suggested solutions, which in some cases are fascinating, might be better than my original solution, and new puzzles that people come up with that are inspired so all that will also be online a uh, uh,
0: little more than a year from now. So look for it. I assume that link, which might not exist yet, will be linked from your own website.
1: Um, I'm thinking it will be linked um, through Taylor and Francis, so that people can find it. Um, but uh, um, because uh, you know, I can't maintain a website forever. Um, but a company can live forever, and a company can keep a website up. Um, so I'm hoping they'll find. It. But but uh, certainly knowing my name, knowing Taylor and Francis, or or Rutledge or uh, CRC Press, or AK Peters, or just mathematical puzzles, ought to enable someone to find this website and and uh, and become. Um, uh, A big fan of puzzles if it was always in them to do that.
0: Great. I will make sure to mention the upcoming uh, online version of the text in the discussion notes for this episode. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, I've been talking with uh, Peter Winkler, author of Mathematical Puzzles, published by Rutledge or CRC Press or AK Peters or Taylor and Francis in 2021. Uh, Pete, thanks very much again for joining me. My pleasure.